For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Jerusalem is being attacked by Assyria, the military superpower of the day. The northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen to them, and so have the fortified cities in Judah. Only Jerusalem remains, and now their walls are surrounded. It looks like there's no hope at all until a message comes from the prophet Isaiah. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a dramatic account of God's miraculous intervention in a message entitled, Pride Goes Before a Fall. Everybody loves a great underdog story. You know, somebody comes against all odds and uh, outnumbered and outgunned and by some miracle, they come out on top and it's awesome. Hollywood knows that we're drawn to those kind of uh, stories and uh, they love to make movies, you you know, telling those stories. If you've got Rudy who uh, is told he's too small to play college um, ball, and you've got Rocky, who's a small-time boxer, he gets an opportunity to go into the heavyweight ring, and, and it's not just people, you know, um, Seabiscuit, you know, he's the undersized racehorse during the Depression years, uh, that proves that to everybody that he can run just as fast as the bigger ponies, and so dozens and dozens of those kind of stories, and I think there's a reason why Hollywood wants to tell that story and, and that we flock to the theaters to pay for those kinds of tickets uh, because the underdog story really is the gospel story. Um, it's really knit into the fabric of human consciousness, I think, because uh, think about it. Everybody born of God overcomes the world. Uh, the first will be last. And the last shall be first, Jesus said. And I'll build my church and not even the, the gates of hell prevail against the, the tiny, uh, if you, you think about it, as respective to the whole world, tiny uh, church, the gates of hell won't prevail. You've got David and Goliath and you've got Gideon and the Midianites and it's just over and over again. And tonight, of course, uh, here in 2 Kings 18, we're going to see the same story uh, played over again uh, and spilling over into chapter 19. So uh, the, it's around the, the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, just a few square miles uh, uh, in size, but they're going to be surrounded by a military uh, superpower. Uh, and somehow... The underdogs are going to prevail, and this time, surprisingly, without having to lift a finger. And so we're going to pick up right there where we left off at verse 17. I'm going to have the the text uh, projected as well. So the king of Assyria, the world power at the time, sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Washerman's Field. They called for the king, and Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, 
uh, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. So three men, uh, delegation from King Hezekiah, went out to meet them. Um, the field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, who's king of Judah, this is what the, the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem only. So come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me, march against this country and destroy it. Well, let's pause there, consider uh, these threats. And so Roman numeral number one, if you're taking notes, the enemy's intimidation, the enemy's intimidation. So first, some context. Okay, so we're 700 years before Christ. Uh, Micah and Isaiah are the prophets right now. Uh, We've got a chart of the kings for you. You'll recall that over 200 years of patience, uh, Israel is now ha- has been evicted from the land. Uh, ten tribes are gone to this king of Assyria, uh, Sennacherib. So he's come in. He's pounding on the door of this guy now, King of Judah. He's already got the. He's already taken them all. I mean the the land. I don't mean all of these kings, but he's taken the land under these these guys, and so there is no Israel anymore. Judah will get 135 extra years because there are actually some kings who fear the Lord, who bring revival uh, to Judah. And so they stave him off. And one of the reasons why he's only parked at the wall, banging on and saying, hey, I'm coming in there, is because God's grace and and guys like Hezekiah, who was pretty much completely uh, faithful and so that's the situation here. Uh, the rest of Second Kings, we've got these kings to go. But tonight's story, uh, Hezekiah, really is the main star, if you will. And uh, we're going to talk about that. So here's what led up to him coming into uh, Jerusalem and uh, uh, confronting King Hezekiah. Uh, you'll remember the last time that we spoke that Hezekiah got fed up with being a vassal to the king of Assyria or a servant. Uh, They were paying uh, taxes to him. And so he decided, because he had experienced such revival, uh, he was feeling kind of confident. And so he told king of Assyria, we're not paying you anymore. So he stopped paying the king of Assyria tribute taxes and bribe money, right? And so he came in with a fury, 
now. And you'll remember last time, Hezekiah kind of buckled and he, and he sent him, what was it? It was uh, 30 tons of silver, one ton of gold. And he said, okay, I made a mistake. Okay, I'll send the taxes. I'll send the taxes. So he, he tried to buy him off. And he was so desperate, you'll recall, he was stripping the gold off the, the door frames of the temple, uh, giving him more than he was asking for. But what happened? Well, he backed off for just a little bit, but then he, he just really wet his appetite. And whenever you give in to the enemy, you're really just wetting his appetite to come in more and to, get, to close in for the kill. And that's exactly what happens. He backs off a little bit. Thank you for the silver and gold. And now, as we just read, he's coming back and he's saying, I'm going to destroy the place because he thinks there's more gold and more silver in there. Actually, there's not much left because he's, he's already paid it uh, out. And so um, he's come in to Judah now, the king of Assyria. And he's taken all the fortified cities. There's no walled cities in the south of Judah left, except one, Jerusalem. That's it. In fact, the king of Assyria is set up a command post at Lachish, and, and, which is 30 miles away from Jerusalem. And he's sending his delegation from Lachish, which is, was a fortified city of Judah. He's sending a delegation to taunt King Hezekiah at Jerusalem from another city that he's already taken. So really, the only guys left is Hezekiah and Jerusalem. And so that's, that's the setting for what we just read now. So verses 17 and 18, the, the stage is set. So there's three guys who come from the bad guy, Hezekiah. And three guys, oh, sorry, three Three guys come from the king of Assyria, and three guys are sent from Hezekiah to meet. And they meet near the aqueduct, which is a kind of a safe place for the three Hebrews uh, to kind of be close, but not too close. And so the three Assyrian representatives are taunting with the message from King Hezekiah. Uh, so I think we need to pay uh, close attention uh, to the taunting because uh, it really, he is, the king of Assyria is a type of Satan or Antichrist. Uh, their language is very similar to Satan's fall out of heaven. Uh, he, he really is a significant uh, type of evil. And so since we deal with that, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, be on alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he uses very similar tactics that we will see tonight. So uh, that's the New Testament application of tonight. It's just not a story about some crazed uh, enemy who comes in and wants to kill God's people, but he really represents the diabolical uh, spiritual uh, world of spiritual warfare that we all have to deal with. So the enemy comes uh, to conquer, and we notice in the text, he uses words of discouragement. And really, it's a masterpiece of deception, really, a psychological warfare. And what he wants to do, first of all, he says, you have two um, things, sources of confidence that I want to undermine. So uh, number one, he seeks to undermine Hezekiah's confidence in their ally, Egypt. Now, Egypt, sadly, was Hezekiah's uh, 
go-to guy for helping him out. And he should have just trusted the Lord. But the, the kings have always have this penchant for going to Egypt to bail Israel out. And time after time, the prophets are always rebuking Israel, saying, why do you always go to Egypt? And Egypt kind of stands for the world. Why do you always look to the world to rescue you instead of the Lord? And so, uh, so that's still a constant temptation even today for us. But the king, the king of Assyria is right, spiritually speaking. He's saying, Egypt is like a dilapidated fence that you lean on and you fall into and get injured by the splinters and everything. And it's not going to help you. Uh, uh, Really, nothing is worse than when the devil torments you with the truth. You know, because he's right. Uh, He shouldn't have been trusting in Egypt. So he says, you don't have the strength, which is true. You don't have the strength, but he's, he, he always leaves out the butt, right? And so he'll tell you the truth, like you're, 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 you're just rotten to the core. Well, sort of, Romans chapter 7 says our, that the, our sinful nature, nothing good dwells in there, right? Or he'll say, that was the stupidest thing you've ever done, right? And it probably was. So there's truth, but he leaves out the part that God still loves you and God can work through it. So he's just killing him uh, with truth that uh, Egypt uh, is not going to be reliable. I wonder how many times the devil told, reminded Abraham and Sarah in those 24 years they were waiting for their promise, how old they were. Just want to tell you, you know, just want to tell you how old, want to remind you how old you are and uh, happy birthday, you know, and... (laughs) And, and just jabbing him all the time. One writer said, when the enemy uses the facts against you, use your faith against him. So the second thing, first it's Egypt. Egypt's it's not going to help you, all right? And number two, uh, and then you might tell me, oh, well, it's the Lord, not Egypt. Well, um, look what you've done, he says. You've taken down all the high places. And the high places were to... Uh, the Assyrian king, oh, you, you've kind of clipped all your, your lines to the Lord, you know? Bad timing to do that. Now you only have one altar to call on the name of the Lord, and how happy is he that you ripped down all the high places? So he can't understand that actually it was a good thing, but he thinks it's a bad thing. And then he says, excuse me, and who do you think sent me? I'm doing God's business. He's using me to chastise you. Right? And so he's just demoralizing God's people and helping them to feel like they can't even turn to God. And there's nothing lower and more debilitating than if you think God is against you. People, Christians can end up in a, a psych ward if they think, well, I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I met somebody in a psych ward who was a good Christian and just just kind of dwelled on that over and over again and just lost their mind. They just burned the gears on eternal condemnation when uh, Romans 8.1 just tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But if the enemy can say, hey, this is proof that God is against you. Boy, that's powerful. Uh, And then all you need to do is just go to the word of God, which says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You know, I used to have trouble 
always feeling condemned when I was a brand new Christian 35 years ago. And I'd just go to certain key scriptures and it was done. Romans 8, 1, boom, done. And, and I'd have five minutes relief, you know, or however long it is. But you know what? You go to those scriptures over, there's power in the word of God. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. You say those things with conviction and God will bring it home. So uh, that first section then we're done with. Lies, distortions, half-truths, uh, Here's what the deal was. Your number one ally, Egypt is a joke. Number two, you're outgunned, even if you had 2,000 men. Sheesh. And number three, God is against you. So uh, things get worse, 26 through 37. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, so the three Hebrews, said to the field commander, I love this, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. (laughs) But the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things? Of course the, the crowds of Hebrews who are gathered on the wall should be listening. I'm talking to them too and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to, I'm sorry, eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the word of the great king. So he's now in Hebrew. He's like, can you not speak in Hebrew, please? We understand the main language, okay? You're upsetting people. Like he's going to say, oh, okay, I don't want to upset people, you know? So now he goes in full-on Hebrew and addresses the Hebrew crowds. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. See, the Antichrist is the great king of the world. Satan is the ruler of this world. Just hear his word. This is what the king says. Do not let the true king, do not let the Lord Jesus, do not let the true king deceive you. He can't deliver you from my hand. Do not let... Hezekiah persuades you. Hezekiah's the good king, all right? Persuades you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Oh, this is the devil. Make peace with me. Come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern or well until I come and take you to a land. This ought to be sounding familiar because it's a counterfeit gospel. I'll come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for he's misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hina, and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? 
How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? That's probably the, the line right there that sealed his fate, right there. <laughs> but the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, don't talk to him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, and Joah, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. So number uh, two would be divide and conquer. Number one was the enemy's intimidation with threats and fears and lies and spiritual deception. Number two is divide and conquer. So we got to undermine the people's confidence in their king so that we can create division and, uh, and conquer from there. And so uh, I think it's funny. So first comes the pitiful plea, as we just read, asking the enemy for a favor, asking Satan uh, to go easy on you and your family or something. Ah, you, you know, just a, uh, they say, sir, if you'd please uh, speak to us. Your, your humble servants in Aramaic. And Aramaic, of course, was the, the empire spoke Aramaic. But uh, they didn't want them to upset the people, the townspeople, by using uh, Hebrew. They're thinking, the three Hebrew delegates are thinking, it's bad enough that we have to hear this stuff. And then they see all the sheep, all the people listening and and all that fear and all that threat, you know. Listen, people like the king of Assyria, the devil, the Antichrist, they don't have a kind bone in their body. People like ISIS, you can't ask them for a favor. You can't say, hey, could you just kind of have a, a little heart here? You're upsetting the peeps, you know. Uh, can you just speak in a language uh, that they can't understand, we can understand, and you'll still make your point. Uh, the devil is not looking, uh, to, or is he interested in minimizing his, uh, the fear he brings, or panic, or chaos, but he's looking to maximize the damage. So do not give him a foothold and think, you know, somehow, uh, you know, he's going to show you a little mercy, uh, because uh, you better not give him a foothold unless you want to be uh, posted and hashtagged to death, all right? Because the whole world will find out about everything. And just look, all you have to do is read the news and you see what men do in darkness and in secret exposed. Their texts, their texts are on the nightly news. It just, it's just something, it's a spiritual uh, law that what is done in darkness like that on that great day will be brought out, especially if people are not covered uh, in redemption in the blood of Christ. So uh, in verse 28, instead of speaking in Aramaic, of course, uh, he's, he, they go into full-on Hebrew, and he's like, hey, Hezekiah is misleading you. You have a false hope. He keeps saying, the Lord will help us. God is on our side. But he says, look at the map, folks. He says, let's be real. Has any God of any nation been able to stop us? Uh, Sam, do you have that map again? Has anybody stopped us on our way down here? Just, just want to know. Iraq, Iran, Turkey, uh, Jordan, uh, Syria, uh, parts of uh, 
Saudi Arabia? Has anybody stopped us? Not one. Not one has stopped us. And we're all the way down here. We're like 10 and 0. And you think Hezekiah is telling you the truth? Just check out the stats. You're going down with everybody else. That's what he's saying to them. And so thank you for that. He says, I've conquered everybody in my path. How can the Lord stop me? Well, you know, remember what somebody said about the Titanic? You know, it's the, the ship that not even God can sink. You know, that wasn't smart. So verses 30, 31 through 30, it is just not smart to, to, to tempt God. I mean, it's just not, you know. I, I, uh, some people out there. Uh, so here comes Satan's false gospel. I, I hope you caught it. So the enemy puts out the offer. He says, make peace with me. All right. Uh, rather than to believe in your king <laughs> who's deceiving you, Align yourself with the king of Assyria, and abundant life will be yours. Wells of fresh spring water on your own property, fruit trees, uh, rich farmland, it's all going to be yours. Abundant life. Uh, Imagine with me, and I'm quoting, hot baked bread in every oven, olive uh, groves, uh, honey flowing, Uh, New wine sparkling in the glass. Choose life, not death. Your guy's misleading you. Well, let me just, you know that everything he said is lines that the Lord himself has said in the Old Testament to Israel. Every single one of those lines you can find coming out of God's mouth. And now the king of Assyria is copying word for word Word for word, you can look this up. What did Jesus say about wells of living water? Right, I'm going to give you wells of living water. And what does the counterfeit king say? Oh, come to me and you'll have fresh water and you'll have baked bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. You'll have baked bread, he says. Uh, Micah chapter 4, Zechariah chapter 3 uses the same line about the vine and the fig. You'll have your own vine, you'll sit under your vine, and you'll have your own fig tree. Same wording, exactly, just stolen, snatched out of God's mouth for God's people. And then he says, hey, that guy, God, is deceiving you. He's not giving you, he's holding back from you. But if you come to me and you serve me, oh, I'll give you the the thing you're looking for. I know what you want. Wow, it's, it's unbelievable. New grain and new wine, completely straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, Flowing honey, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8. Choose life, not death, is an altar call from the Lord to Israel. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. And, you know, we shouldn't be surprised. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. Uh, uh, Satan is called the counterfeiter. He's a counterfeiter. All he wants, he's he's wanted God's job from the beginning. That's what got him fired. That's what got him thrown out. He wanted God's job, and he still wants it today. He wants to possess people. The Holy Spirit possesses them. He wants to possess them. He wants to be the object of worship. He tells Jesus the Lord, bow down. Bow down and worship me. That's all I've ever wanted. And there he is. And do you think he doesn't tell you that? He tells Jesus that. 
So he, here it is again, just stealing the lines like that. One writer put it this way. The devil has wanted to play God from the beginning. And, and still he is vying for that position. By promising pleasure and profit, he hopes to get us to leave our allegiance to Christ, the true king, to follow him. And he does so with carefully crafted counterfeits and accusations against the trustworthy nature of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And so uh, verse 36, uh, fortunately the Hebrews were listening to uh, King Hezekiah's advice not to engage and the officials went to the king uh, with, the, with the enemy's words, but nobody uh, talked back to them, which was good. All right, let's go to chapter 19, verses one through eight. We're gonna get done with the story. I'll just make a few comments and we'll get... We're going to make it. When King Hezekiah heard this, okay, so the three guys come and they say, hey, listen, we got some bad news. We got a big bully out there. Uh, He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth. And it's like burlap, like morning time, very uncomfortable. And went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. As when children come to the point of birth and there's no strength to deliver them, it may be that the Lord, your God, Isaiah, will hear all the words of this field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God. And that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives behind these walls. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, King Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says. Don't be afraid of what you've heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put such a spirit in him that when he hears a certain report, he'll return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with the sword. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, which is 30 miles away, the the little walled city that he had already conquered, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. That might be it. Good. All right, it is. So number three, time to seek the Lord. Uh, let us, therefore, uh, go to the approach with all confidence and boldness, the throne of grace in our time of need to find mercy. Um, and that is what he's doing. Uh, Hezekiah gets word. He's filled with grief, as we've just read. Uh, Their lives are at stake, and God's name and reputation is on the line. And and so the the same three guys who heard the news from this field commander have now, with along with some priests, gone in mourning clothes to our hero, uh, Isaiah. They're seeking the Lord, and they want some spiritual guidance. And so uh, the message to Isaiah is a good one. I really like it. Um, Verses three and four, with humility, they go and they say, number one, God God may be disciplining us. 
You know, I really like that attitude. We need his correction. This is a day of rebuke, he says. You know, he doesn't go in on a high horse with arrogant presumption. Hey, these guys are bad guys. And, you know, we're God's people. And he just says, hey, look, we're in, we're in trouble here. And we probably deserve it. God's correcting us. So that's the first humble approach. I like that. And number two, uh, they say we're helpless without him. We're like a, a, a woman in travail and she has no strength to deliver the baby. I mean, it's, it's a bad situation where we're, we're hopeless without God. Number three, he says, uh, here's hoping that God will defend his own name. So they, they're saying, hey, God heard this. He can defend himself. And, and number four, please pray for us. There's a small remnant. And we, Isaiah, we really, we know you're a man of God. We want your prayers. And so uh, God speaks encouragingly back through Isaiah. And he says, don't be afraid. And underlings is a pejorative term. It's an insult. It's like the word peon. So he's saying, don't be afraid of his peons who come out, these three commanders or whatever they are. Don't be afraid of these flunkies, his flunkies. That's really the sense of the term here. You don't need to be afraid because verse 7, I've got a plan to get rid of this guy, the king of Assyria. And I send him on a one-way ticket. You'll never see him again. So there's a temporary break. The Assyrian commander leaves Jerusalem where he was taunting everybody and he, and he goes uh, with an update to the king, his master. And he finds him, uh, you know, fighting another city in Judah that needs reinforcements. Okay, picking up in 9 through 13 now. Now, Sennacherib, that's the bad boy. That's the master king of Assyria. Received a report that Turkhaka the Cushite king of Egypt, let's just call him Pharaoh, so much easier, was marching out to fight against him. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, so uh, he's distracted. The king of Assyria is distracted. So he just wants Hezekiah to know, even though I'm distracted over here, I'm still after you. It doesn't mean I, I'm giving up. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. So apparently he may have gotten wind that Isaiah has already prophesied that, hey, it's going to be okay. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? I don't think so. Sorry, I threw that in there. Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers, like we got a history here. We just bowl over everybody. We're steamrollers. Did they deliver the gods of Gozan? Where are they? Haran, Rezef, and all the people of Eden who were in Tel, the hill of Esar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of city of Sepharvaim, or Hina, or Iva. Where are they all? Well, they're out at language school trying to pronounce their names. <laughs> That's where they are. Well, the threat is reiterated. And he is truly saying, hey, I may be over here mopping up a little military campaign, but I have not forgotten about Jerusalem. So just, how, you know, old Isaiah prophesied, big deal. 
It's not going to happen. Let me remind you of the 10 nations and the 10 gods that we just steamrolled over, you know? So really, this is all he's saying. It's in a form of a letter now, all right? The first one was just spoken. This one comes by letter. Number one, you can't trust God. He's deceiving you. Number two, we have a proven track record, 10 and 0. Number three, no God can stop us. No God has stopped us. Neither can your God. You're doomed. Love the king of Assyria. <laughs> 14 through 19. Hezekiah received the letter <clears throat> from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O oh Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O oh Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib has sent to, the, to insult the living God. It's true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them because they weren't really gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that, so that, not just for us, that all the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. That's awesome. So number five, I believe, already, uh, he lays it out before the Lord. He lays his burden before the Lord. First uh, Peter and, and uh, 5, 7 says, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. So he takes this, this terrible death sentence of a letter and he lays it out before God he just puts it there and says take a look God this is what I'm dealing with I just want you to see it I cast it upon you and and what a beautiful thing to to lay I don't know your bills or a letter that just kind of is upsetting or whatever it is to lay that thing uh, before the Lord a doctor's report a report card you know, a summons. <laughs> well, I don't know where that, that just came into my mind. Lay it out there before God. Uh, one writer put it this way. I already can tell I can't see it. So, oh, that's so much better. When therefore, listen to what F.B. Meyer says. When therefore letters come to you, anonymous or otherwise, full of bitter reproach, when unkind and malignant stories are told with respect to you, when all hope from man has perished, then take your complaint, the letter, the article, the speech, the rumor, and lay it before God. Let your requests be made known unto him. A British pastor from the 1800s, F.B. Meyer. Beautiful, simple, humble prayer. The first one is when you're in trouble, it's always good to start out with a little praise. He praises the Lord by acknowledging his power. And I think he's kind of doing what David did to encourage himself in the Lord. You know, he's reminding himself, oh, Lord God, 
You are the one enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. You are the God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. Oh, yeah. See, he's starting to build his own faith and he's praising God. And so that's how he starts it. Number two in verse 16, he says, Lord, check out what this guy said about you. What an insult, really. How dare he insult the God I love? Number three in verse 17, he says, it's true. They're 10 and 0 for sure. But you know what? Their gods, are, you could buy them at Walmart. You know, it just, it's not really, they're not really gods at all. Verse 19, it says, I love this. Save us for your own glory so that everybody will know there's a God in heaven. That's the deal, man. When you want God to come through for you, not just because you've got some kind of problem, but you want other people to see that God has answered your prayer and come through and, and everybody knew you were struggling with this thing. And, and then when he answers you, you get to, to share that with somebody and uh, their faith is strengthened in the Lord as well. So we continue on 20 through 28. Come on, we're getting there. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message in response to his prayer. So he lays out the letter and now God is going to send a message to Isaiah in response to his prayer. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I've heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. The, the pure, virgin, innocent daughter of Zion despises you, king of Assyria, and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel, God speaking about himself. By your messengers, you have heaped insults on the Lord and you have said, with many chariots, I've ascended the heights of the mountains and the utmost heights of Lebanon. This is very familiar talk about Satan in Isaiah 14. It's the same language. So that's where we get that from. I've cut down. Now he's mocking how ridiculous this king of Assyria sounds. The Lord's mocking him. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its pines. I have reached its remotest parts, the finest of its force. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I, 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 I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass. And you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. He's saying, even if you had a victory, it was my allowing of it. Their people drained of power are dismayed and put to shame. They're like plants in a field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you stay and when you come and go and how you rage against me because you rage against me and your insolence, your arrogance has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I'll make you return the one-way ticket back to your mama. <laughs> Sorry. I just, it was getting a little dry in here. I just had to throw that in there. A quick response to a heartfelt prayer. So 
the Lord's responded. He always does when you pray. He always, he always brings reassurance. And, and what a relief. Number one, uh, he says, I've heard you. Oh, man. If I get a word from God that says, I heard you. And we know he is, what, what is it? Psalm 65, 2. You are the God who hears prayer. Amen. He hears, you know, sometimes you think your prayers have just hit the roof and fallen down. He hears. He hears. And he's telling this guy, listen, I know you're upset. I have heard you. Oh, man. I'm excited. I get excited. Well, God has heard. If God says, hey, listen, I heard you, and I'm, I'm working on it, I'm engaged on this. And so there's reassurance. And he says, I've heard you. I've seen you. Genesis 16, 13. He's the God who sees me. That's his, one of his titles. So here's the picture. He says, uh, Isaiah's sending. He's saying, here's the picture God wants you to see of this Young, pure girl, innocent and undefiled, unviolated is why he uses the word virgin. That Sennacherib doesn't get in and violates Jerusalem. So this young, innocent girl uh, is going to be waving goodbye as you run home with your tail between your legs and she's going to toss her head. I love that. It's like a Z-snap. It's like she's just going to just kind of Toss her head like, bye-bye, like she's this kind of mocking, and she's not even going to have to fight. But you're going to go, Mr. Military Might of the whole world, it was. You are going to run away from a 14, 15-year-old girl who's going to be waving to you goodbye with an attitude. She's going to wave goodbye with a little bit of an attitude, tossing her head back and forth. Um, I, being the person I am, kind of like that. I just kind (laughs) of... Like that God allows us to once in a while have a little bit of an attitude. All right. So God is addressing king of Assyria in the first person. And verses 22 and following, if you're taking notes, uh, he says this whole thing, he's speaking to the king now, from God to the Assyrian king. He's saying, Mr. King, this whole thing is about a war against me. And let me tell you, uh, let me show you. You think you're all that and those, all of those lines. I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. He goes, but I know who you are exactly. And if you've done anything, it's because I allowed it. You know? He says, I'll show you what my power is all about. I'm going to end up sending you home on a one-way ticket. Let's finish up and we'll be done. Last time. This will be the sign for you now. He changes to talk to Hezekiah. Oh, Hezekiah, now this year you'll eat, you will eat what grows by itself. The second year, what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root uh, below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Oh, when he says that, it's pretty much a done deal. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the bad boy king of Assyria. He's not going to even enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. That's what they would do. 
by the way he, that he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I'll defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. Bam. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. <laughs> Oh, I love the Bible. So, <laughs> Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrosh, or just whatever that word is, his sons, A and S, cut him down with the sword. Oh, his own boys. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. Is that it? Wow. We made it, huh? Well, well let me make a few comments before you pack up. <laughs> so God's reassurance to King Hezekiah. So he's saying the first thing, he says, hey, it's going to take a few years. Okay, the first year, you, because of the invasion, they didn't plant, right? So he's saying, you'll live off the volunteers and the um, chance growth that just comes up. The second year as well from that. And the third year, by year three, you guys are going to be back to normal. So give it a little time. Just want you to know, sometimes, you know what? After you've been through something traumatic, it takes a little time. It takes a little time. So... Uh, God is just ensuring, number two, there's going to be a remnant of survivors. Number three, he says, as for Mr. Big Shot, he's not going to fire any bows and arrows here. He's not coming in over the wall. You won't even see him. He's not allowed access in. I love this. He says, I'll defend the city for my sake and for David's sake. David's been dead for 300 years. David so pleased God with that love and that faith that that man had, even though he, he did terrible things, he loved the Lord. And God, 300 years later, is saying, for his sake and his vested interests and what would make him happy, I'm still working 300 years thinking about him. What would he like? What would he want? Because me and him were like this. This was a guy after my own heart. What a, what a, just unbelievable. One writer said, a devoted life can bring favorable remembrances and blessings from God for generation upon generation. Verse 35, that night, that night, 185,000 soldiers gone. Now, he said he hired an angel. God hired an angel to said, take care of him. And he did. Now, how did that happen? A plague? An order of the... Who, you know what? I don't have problems with miracles after Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you can get past that, that God just spoke and there was a universe, then you know 185,000 soldiers is not so hard to swallow. Amen? Amen. All right. 
You know, what's the problem with a big fish swallowing somebody? I mean, you're the one who believes that, that God spoke and there were planets, right? So come on. I mean, just don't just say, I don't know if I could believe that. Well, how did you get past Genesis, <laughs> right? How do, you, how do you believe in Jesus that he's the God-man, that he had no human father? If you're, not, if you're stumbled by every little miracle that comes up, how are you even a Christian? A basic Christian believes that, that Mary had no union with a man and that, that the Holy Spirit became flesh and blood, the incarnation of God Almighty. Now, if you have to believe that, then all these other things are really just not that big of a deal. Amen? I'm almost done. Verse 35, the, the, the people, of, this is the best part. The people of Jerusalem wake up. Oh, no, they're out there. They're still out there. They look out the window, and all they see, it says, and there they were. That's what it says. And there they were, the corpses. Can you imagine the faith? Can you imagine? Just put yourself in their shoes. They've just been out there ready to kill them, telling them you're going to be in a bad way. <laughs> no one repeat what they said that was going to happen to them. And then they look out, and they're just piles of dead bodies. And they're flapping their heads like, see you later. That's un unbelievable to me. Just beautiful. Um, and then, uh, by the way, there's 20 years between 30, verse 36 and verse 37. So when he goes back, there's 20 years God's waiting for him. Don't perish. Why will you go to hell when you don't have to? 20 years. And then on the fateful day, so fitting, he goes into his pagan God, and he's doing his thing, and his two sons come in for whatever reason we're not told, and cut him down, take off. They don't even get the throne. A third brother gets it. It's unbelievable. Now, this is a picture of what's coming soon. The church is taken out of the way, and God starts dealing with Israel again. Seven years of hell that ends with the earth not very habitable. They surround Jerusalem again he appears and they're gone wiped out it's the same picture after a thousand years of Satan bound a new world that's been refurbished and like the garden of Eden at the end of a thousand years they surround Jerusalem again the babies of those who enter the, the, the millennial kingdom, the children and their children and their children who have never been tested. They still have a sin nature, but, and they live many, many years, but they've never seen this world. They're tested. They're deceived. Satan is loosed. They surround again. This is a prophetic picture of what's coming not once, but twice. But in that second time, God just gives the word, and boom, fire comes down. <laughs> There's no fighting. There's no problems that way. And so still, after a thousand years, still Jerusalem surrounded like that. I have five, uh, five one-liners, takeaways, from tonight's couple chapters 
Let me read them to you. They're just little takeaways. Number one, the enemy is a liar who is always trying to discourage and defeat us with lies. We need to submit ourselves to God and resist him and embrace the truth. Number two, the enemy is a divider who is always trying to pit God's people against one another. God expects us to dwell together in peace, love, and Christian unity. Number three, the enemy is a counterfeiter who is always trying to tempt us away from Christ by promising us things he cannot deliver. The true abundant life comes only from serving the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, when we're in trouble, pressed by the enemy, we need to humble ourselves and seek the Lord and spiritual guidance. And number five, lastly, the proud enemies of the Lord will perish, but those who trust in the Lord will be saved. And P.S., Jerusalem wins. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for being for us. Father, if God is for us, who could be against us? And Lord, even if we lose our lives for you, it's win-win situation and rewarded as martyrs in your kingdom. God, it's just, it's awesome that nothing, not even death or life or angels or demons or things present or things to come can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we thank you, Lord, for this, this story. Help us to take the truths and apply them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song.